Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Even though this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally and historically accurate as possible. Every day a new section of the Doctrine and Covenants will be released. I hope that you'll visit this often and be able to share this uh, with your friends. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Doctrine and Covenants podcast. This will be for section 49. Now, I'm going to give you a little heads up on this one, because at the end of the section, after the section is over, I'm going to read a little bit about uh, Jesus' personal life, some some, uh, writings that we have from some of the early brethren about whether Jesus was married or not. Since this section has to do with uh, marriage and the importance of it, I thought I would include some comments about that. But if you don't want to read about that or listen to it, just uh, end. You can stop the recording at the end of the section and then just not listen any further. So I'm just giving you a heads up. Here's the heading to the section. Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet to Sidney Rigdon, Parley P. Pratt, and Lehman Copley at Kirtland, Ohio, May 7, 1831. Lehman Copley had embraced the gospel but still held to some of the teachings of the Shakers, United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, to which he had formerly belonged. Some of the beliefs of the Shakers were that Christ's second coming had already occurred and that he appeared in the form of a woman, Anne Lee. They did not consider baptism by water essential. They rejected marriage and believed in a life of total celibacy. Some shakers are are also forbade the eating of meat. In prefacing this revelation, Joseph Smith's history states, In order to have a more perfect understanding on the subject, I inquired of the Lord and received the following. The revelation refutes some of the basic concepts of the shaker group. The aforementioned brethren took a copy of the Revelation to the Shaker community near Cleveland, Ohio, and read it to them in its entirety, but it was re- it was rejected. Another little background on this uh, particular section. About 15 miles from Kirtland, Ohio, where the body of the church resided, was a community of, sh- of Shaking Quakers, or Shakers. They were called Shaking Quakers because their dress resembled that of the Society of Friends, or Quakers, and because their system of worship included shaking and physical contortions. One of their number, Lehman Copley, joined the church, though he still held to some of his former beliefs, which he persisted in teaching. In this revelation, given the 7th of March, 1831, he, along with Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt, were directed to take the message of the Restoration to the Shakers. Some months previously, Elder Pratt had spent two days with them and left them seven copies of the Book of Mormon. This revelation, which Sidney Rigdon read in its entirety to the Shakers, was given so that the missionaries might respond to the spirit of revelation to the matters of particular interest to the Shakers. Those beliefs included the idea that Christ had already returned, doing so in the form of a woman, Anne Lee, who had died in 1784. They held that baptism and the Lord's Supper ceased with the apostolic age and that there was no vicarious atonement, nor was there to be a bodily resurrection. The eating of pork was rejected, and some of their number rejected the eating of meat at all, of any meat at all. They also felt that a celibate life was superior to marriage and that having children reduced their standing with God. Although this revelation, section 49, was rejected by the Shakers, its doctrinal announcements remain important. Also of importance is the pattern it established for missionary work. The elders did not engage the Shakers in a doctrinal debate over the peculiar tenets of their faith, but invited them to hear the word of the Lord as it was given to them. It was then for them to choose whether they would accept that word as it came to them through a living prophet or reject it. Sadly, they rejected it. This last thing was an analysis by Joseph Eli McConkie. 
Verse 1, Hearken unto my word, my servants, Sidney and Parley and Leman. For behold, verily I say unto you, that I give unto you a commandment, that you shall go and preach my gospel, which ye have received, even as ye have received it, unto the Shakers. Behold, I say unto you, that they desire to know the truth in part, but not all, for they are not all right before me, and must needs repent. Wherefore I send you, my servants, Sidney and Parley, to preach the gospel unto them. And my servant Leman shall be ordained unto this work, that he may reason with them, not according to that which he has received of them, but according to that which he shall be taught him by you, my servants, and by so doing I will bless him, otherwise he shall not prosper." Lehman Copley, a recent convert from the Shakers, is cautioned not to reason with his former colleagues on their ground. His commission now is to declare the message of the Restoration. If he is true to the message he has been given, he is assured success. If he fails to follow this counsel, he is told that he will not prosper. The principle is applicable to all missionary work. Our commission is to declare the message of the Restoration from the revelations of the Restoration. Such a course is consistently rewarded with a marvelous outpouring of the Spirit and a rich harvest of souls. Those insisting on giving credence to the restored gospel by proving it, as it were, from Old and New Testament texts, or arguing for its credibility in some other way, do not enjoy the same outpouring of the Spirit or the same power of conversion. That was by Joseph Philly McConkie. There is always a tendency to preach to those of another faith by trying to persuade them from their own point of view that the restored gospel must be true. Such an approach avoids asking investigators to give up or change any of their original beliefs and avoids any sense of confrontation between the old and the new. This is not how the Lord wanted this mission to be undertaken. The Shakers were to be confronted with the simple truth. The missionaries were to read the message of Doctrine and Covenants 49 and command the Shakers to repent. They would teach the doctrines of the Restoration, the Book of Mormon, and the divine calling of Joseph Smith without embarrassment or apology. Verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, For I am God, and have sent mine only begotten Son into the world for the redemption of the world, and have decreed that he that received receiveth him shall be saved, and he that receiveth him not shall be damned. And they have done unto the Son of Man, even as they listed, and he has taken his power on the right hand of his glory, and now reigneth in the heavens, and will reign till he descends on the earth to put all enemies under his feet, which time is nigh at hand. I, the Lord God, have spoken it, but the hour and the day no man knoweth, neither the angels in heaven, nor shall they know until he comes." We will not be given to know the exact time of the Lord's coming, but there will be enough signs and meetings preceding his coming that it won't be hard to guess an approximate time. In my opinion, this is me speaking, me myself, since Christ's mortal life began <clears throat> and ended in the spring of the year, it is possible that his return will occur in the fall of the year, around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates the harvest. Also, the Lord does not does nothing except he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets, so he will inform his prophets prior to the second coming so that they will know to warn the people. Verse 8, Wherefore I will that all men shall repent, for all are under sin except those which I have reserved unto myself, holy men that ye know not of. This is an interesting uh, expression here, holy men that ye know not of. During his mortal ministry, Christ said, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
Commenting on this verse, Elder McConkie said, It is apparent that on previous occasion, of which we have no present scriptural record, Jesus taught his disciples the truths about the doctrine of translation and promised that some of them would continue to live on earth until his second coming. John the Beloved is the only known one of these disciples who has continued to live without tasting death. Until the identity of any others is revealed, we have no way of knowing who they are or what mission they have been able to perform because of their translation. Verse 9, Wherefore I say unto you that I have sent unto you mine everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. And that which I have promised I have so fulfilled, and the nations of the earth shall bow to it. And if not of themselves, they shall come down, for that which is now exalted of itself shall be made low of power. Wherefore I give unto you a commandment, that ye go among this people, and say unto them, like unto mine apostle of old, whose name was Peter, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, who was on the earth, and is to come, the beginning and the end. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, according to the holy commandments, for the remission of sins. And whoso doeth this shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of the hands of the elders of the church. And again, verily, I say unto you, that whoso forbiddeth to marry is not ordained of God, for marriage is ordained of God unto man. Paul, in his epistle to Timothy, identified forbidding to marry as a sign of apostasy and a doctrine of the devil. Marriage, we are assured in this text, is ordained of God. In a proclamation to the world issued in 1995, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve asserted that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of his children. verse 16 wherefore it is lawful that he should have one wife and they twain shall be one flesh and all this that the earth might answer the end of its creation and that it might be filled with the measure of man according to his creation before the world was made this is the first scripture in the doctrine and covenants to deal with the topic of premortal existence the measure of man is the number of human beings created to live upon this earth and this number is fixed The earth was created to be filled with the measure or number of spirit children who were begotten with the intent that they should live here. And when when were these spirits created? Before the world was made. A certain number of spirits will be born into mortality during the millennium when the earth is in its terrestrial or paradisiacal state. But these persons will also be part of the measure of man, the number of those designated to experience their mortality upon this earth. In other words, there will be eventually one last person born to this earth because there's a finite number of people that are coming to this earth. And we don't know who that is, but we'll find out. Verse 18, And whoso forbiddeth to abstain from meats, that man should not eat the same, is not ordained of me of God. <clears throat> it's okay to be a vegetarian, just don't preach that it's the church's policy to be one. Verse 19, For behold, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and that which cometh of the earth is ordained for the use of man, for for food and for raiment, and that he might have in abundance. But it is not given that one man should possess that which is above another, wherefore the world lieth in sin. And woe be unto man that sheddeth blood, or that wasteth flesh, and hath no need. The killing of animals for sport finds no justification in Scripture. Surely blood shall not be shed, the Lord told those in ancient days, only for meat, to save your lives, and the blood of every beast will I require at your hands. Verse 22, And again verily I say unto you, that the Son of Man cometh not in the form of a woman, neither of a man traveling on the earth, Wherefore, be not deceived, but continue in steadfastness, looking forth for the heavens to be shaken, and the earth to tremble, and to reel to and fro as a drunken man, and for the valleys to be exalted, and for the mountains to be made low, and for the rough places to become smooth, and all this when the angel shall sound his trumpet. 
But before the great day of the Lord shall come, Jacob shall flourish in the wilderness, and the Lamanites shall blossom as the rose. The physical gathering alluded to in the assembling of the Latter-day Saints in the tops of the mountains in western America, where Zion shall flourish upon the hills and rejoice upon the mountains, the wilderness included areas that were colonized under the direction of Brigham Young. The day when the Lamanites shall blossom as the rose has scarcely commenced. They are only beginning to be the pure and delightsome people they will yet become. This statement, given in 1831, was a remarkable prophecy that modern Israel, <clears throat> the LDS Church, would be driven into the wilderness where they would prosper and grow. Of this verse, Elder McConkie wrote, The physical gathering here alluded to is the assembling of the Latter-day Saints in the tops of the mountains in Western America. It is there that Zion shall flourish upon the hills and rejoice upon the mountains. The wilderness referred to in is the then uninhabited areas that were colonized by Brigham Young less than a score of years later. Verse 25, Zion shall flourish upon the hills and rejoice upon the mountains and shall be assembled together unto the place which I have appointed. Behold, I say unto you, go forth as I have commanded you, repent of all your sins, ask and ye shall receive, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Behold, I will go before you and be your rearward, and I will be in your midst and you will, be, and you will not be confounded. Behold, I am Jesus Christ and I come quickly, even so, amen. The mission to convert the Shakers in March of 1831 proved largely unsuccessful. The congregation of Shakers formally rejected the message sent to them in Doctrine and Covenants 49. Also, Lehman Copley's testimony was shaken, and his loyalties returned to the Shakers once again. By June, he had broken his promise given in March to allow the recently arrived New York Saints to settle on his land, and with the help of Shaker leader Ashbel Kitchell, he had the Saints evicted from his land. His betrayal forced these saints to abandon the improvements they had made to Copley's farm and move on to Missouri immediately. For this, Copley was disfellowship, but he was back in full fellowship again in October 1832. In 1834, however, Lehman bore a false testimony against Joseph Smith in a lawsuit that the prophet had filed against Philastus Hurlbert, and for this, Lehman Copley was excommunicated. On the 1st of April, 1836, he apologized to the prophet for his false testimony and was accepted back into the church. Lehman Copley never gathered with the saints in Missouri, Illinois, or Utah. He died in Ohio in 1860 and is buried in Thompson, Ohio. Now, as I promised, I was going to read some things about uh, the possibility of Jesus being married. If you don't want to listen to that, you can stop right here or continue. This will be another 10 or 15 minutes. <clears throat> don't quote me on that part. <clears throat> so... The question is, was Jesus married? I want you to consider these things about as we think about this. Because a Jewish man be, being unmarried at the age of Jesus would have been so unusual during the, the time in which Jesus lived, and because the New Testament does not explicitly say that he had no wife, some have suggested that this itself may be evidence that he was indeed married. Otherwise, the scriptures would have mentioned that he wasn't and why. If Jesus had been a bachelor, the Bible would surely contain some record of his being criticized for it. To the Jews, their human Savior would be an embodiment of the laws of God. He would typify them rather than being exempt from them. Just as Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness and said that he had not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it, they also expected a married Messiah because the prophets of their Tenech, the Hebrew Bible, 
predicted his marital state as a feature of his life. And speaking of Israel's expectant deliverer in a passage Paul identifies as referring to Jesus, David wrote, Kings, daughters were among thy honorable women, or wives, as the, as the 1599 version of the Geneva Bible. And a 1636 Church of England Bible puts it, Of him having children, Isaiah predicts, he shall see his seed and asks, who shall declare his generation? Whether Jesus was married, in addition to all the indications already given, it is interesting to note that Jesus was referred to by a title only given to married teachers, that of rabbi. Even his detractors had no qualms about referring to him as such and allowed him to preach in the synagogue, a practice also limited to married men. John, in the second chapter of his book, speaks of a wedding at which not only Jesus was present, but also his mother, who would have had to have traveled all the way from Nazareth especially to be there. At this event, Jesus was in charge of the wine, a duty usually set aside for the groom, and if this does not make it obvious enough that it was his own wedding he was present at, we have the sacred record that he has referred to that he was referred to as the bridegroom on this occasion. In John chapter 2, it reads, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And saith unto him, Every man at the at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou but thou hast kept the good wine until now. The association of Jesus in asking the question, Who was Jesus married to? The association Jesus had with certain women would have been wholly inappropriate for a single man, but per perfectly normal and accepted for a husband. In the Greek language, there is little distinction between the word woman and wife, and so therefore any, if not all, of those females who accompanied him quite possibly could have been married to him. Martha called him master, a title a wife would use to address her husband, and when Mary, her sister, was in mourning over the death of their brother Lazarus, she sat in her home until Jesus called her out, just as was the custom that only a husband could call a woman out of her home at such a time. Not only did Christ fulfill the traditions and duties of a typical Jewish husband, but so did his wives when they anointed him prior to his burial. Jesus Christ never omitted the, the fulfillment of a single law that God had made known for the salvation of the children of men. It would not have done him to have come and obeyed one law and neglected or rejected another. He could not do that and then say to mankind, follow me. That was by Joseph F. Smith. Joseph Smith, in fact, stated that Mary and Martha manifested a much closer relationship with Jesus than merely a believer. And that was out of the journal of Wilfred Woodruff, later explicitly naming Mary Magdalene as his wife. The prophet did not surmise that Jesus must have been married, but through the, the unique insight and inspiration that came with his calling could proclaim Jesus was indeed wed. 
It will be borne in mind that once on a time there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and on a careful reading of, of that transaction, it will be discovered that no less a person than Jesus Christ was married on that occasion. If he was never married, his intimacy with Mary and Martha, and the other Mary also whom Jesus loved, must have been highly unbecoming and improper to say the best of it. And this is uh, from Orson Hyde. Uh, I will venture to say that if Jesus Christ were now to pass through the most pious countries in Christendom with a train of women such as used to follow him, fondling about him, combing his hair, anointing him with precious ointment, washing his feet with tears and wiping them with the hair of their heads and unmarried or even married, he would be mobbed, tarred and feathered and rode out on an ass, not on an ass, but on a rail. One thing is certain that there were several holy women that greatly loved Jesus, such as Mary and Martha, her sister, and Mary Magdalene, and Jesus greatly loved them and associated with them much. And when he arose from the dead, instead of first showing himself to his chosen witnesses, the apostles, he appeared first to these women, or at least to one of them, namely Mary Magdalene. Now, it would be very natural for a husband in the resurrection to appear first to his own dear wives and afterwards show himself to his other friends. If all the acts of Jesus were written, we no doubt should learn that these beloved women were his wives. And that was a quote by Orson Pratt. He being married, he would, we would expect him to have lived up to all of the God-given responsibilities that come with such a union. Chief among these being this, the commandment to bring spirit children into the world through the means of procreation. Once again, God's apostles and prophets proclaimed that this was not just a possibility that he might do so, but a necessity. And this is a quote by Orson Hyde. Did the Savior of the world consider it to be his duty to fulfill all righteousness? You answer yes. Even the simple ordinance of baptism he would not pass by, for the Lord commanded it. And therefore it was righteousness to obey what the Lord had commanded, and he would fulfill all righteousness. Upon this hypothesis, I will go back to the beginning and notice the commandment that was given to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. The Lord said unto them, Multiply and replenish the earth. Our first parents, then, were commanded to multiply and replenish the earth, and if the Savior found it his duty to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, a command of far less importance than that of multiplying his race, if indeed there is any difference in the commandments of Jehovah, for they are all important and all essential, would he not find it his duty to join in with the rest of the faithful ones in replenishing the earth? That was out of the Journal of Discourses, Volume 2. The offspring from such a union, being the children of a perfect being, would almost certainly be uniquely endowed with an inclination towards righteousness and a rare degree of spiritual strength not often seen amongst other mortals. What a loss it would be to the world if they were to be unrecognized, but this is not a danger us Latter-day Saints need fear of, for the early prophets and apostles of this dispensation declared, through use of their revelatory skills, that indeed the sons of the Messiah did walk amongst the saints, Joseph Smith being the first to reveal this truth when he informed the plural wife of Edgar of Elder Judge Adams that the apostle was a literal descendant of Jesus Christ. That was by Oliver B. Huntington. Lorenzo Snow and his counselor, George Q. Cannon, would also declare this truth more publicly. President George Q. Cannon also said, among the other things he said, there are those in this audience who are descendants of the old twelve apostles, and shall I say it, yes, descendants of the Savior himself. His seed is represented in this body of men. Following President Cannon, President Snow arose and said that what Brother Cannon had stated respecting the literal descendants among this company of the old apostles and the Savior himself is true. The Savior's seed is represented in this body of men. And that was from uh, the journal of President Redger Clausen. 
other arguments for Jesus being married. In section 131, it states, In the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees, and in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. He may enter into the other, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. This, however, does not mean that Jesus was married during mortality, but that he would need to be sealed to a spouse in order to be exalted. In his answer to the Sadducees who questioned him about marriage in the afterlife, Jesus responded in Matthew 22, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. The interpretation of this verse is that sealings to spouses are to be done prior to the resurrection. Therefore, Jesus, having been resurrected three days after his death, would have had to have been sealed prior to either prior to his death or during the time his body rested in the sepulcher prior to his resurrection. It seems most logical to assume that Jesus, being our ultimate exemplar, would set us the pattern by, by being sealed himself to a spouse while in mortality, instead of waiting to be sealed to a spouse by proxy on his behalf. Although Elder McConkie stated, there is no revelation, either ancient or modern, which says that there is neither marrying nor given in marriage in heaven itself for righteous people. Also, as mentioned previously, the Jewish custom was for men to be married and have children, and since there are no recorded objections by the Jewish rulers who questioned him about everything else, to have him have him not criticized for his omission had, not, had he not been married. Uh, so anyway, uh, I believe that Jesus was married. I also believe he had children, but you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. Uh, even though the early brethren have stated that that was the case, uh, the current brethren don't speak much of that at all, and don't speak of it at all. Um, but you can decide for yourselves. I bear testimony of the truth of the gospel, and that as we study these things, we can know for ourselves whether they're true or not. I bear that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.